So, as we return to the text from the table, we discover as we do at the table the sweetness of God's patient mercy. Look with me at the text starting in verse 6 of chapter 13. And he, Jesus, told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. And I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered them, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The question that this text poses is how much good is a fruit tree that doesn't make fruit? Not much good. It's not even doing what it's supposed to do. In fact, it's pretty much worthless. We come to this story on the heels of the previous five verses. In our time at the table, we should feel the somberness and the weightiness of sin, of suffering, and of death. That's true. Our lives, our fruit will be judged. But something else is at work in this text too. It is beautiful, in fact, to trace throughout the scriptures the conversations between the Father and the Son to which we are permitted to listen. Only a few sentences reach us, but they are full of teaching to the listening ear. And in this short parable of the fig tree, we are permitted to hear but a part of the dialogue, and in it the Lord reveals himself in the character of intercessor. We know from the text that the owner of the vineyard was not unwilling to spare the tree. He considers the cry, the plea of the vine dresser. Nor is he unwilling to give it another opportunity for fruit bearing. The heart of the father is not less loving than that of the son. For there is always perfect harmony of thought between them. The Son, who is the express image of His person, is also the expression of His Father's heart. The Word that here voices His thoughts towards Israel, toward the world, and towards you and me now. Do we find as we listen that both are equally angry at sin? Both alike are equally full of love to the sinner. As we even fast forward, if we were to go to the end of Luke 13, we would find Jesus wishing that he could gather his children together, that he could gather Israel together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. God's 
desire is for repentance and reconciliation. His aim is grace. And yet we're left at the end of Luke 13 with the feeling that Israel will not turn from their sin. I don't know that this text can do anything else other than propel us to humble worship. Look at the text. Year after year, there's no fruit. There's no denying that. There's not like a hint of fruit. There's not, maybe there's going to be hope that there would be fruit. There is zero hope here. There is no fruit. And yet, the vine dresser comes and says, could we do this? And the owner of the vineyard says, yes, absolutely. We will wait another year. God is patient. That doesn't mean that there is no coming judgment. No, judgment is coming. And yet God in His mercy and kindness is patient to hold out grace to the rebel that is far away from, in his, that is far away from Him. And in this, in this patient mercy, He is indeed mighty to save the one that is far from Him. And church, this means that we can never look at our neighbor the same way again. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity that Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. And we have to deal with whether this is true or false. Now there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I was only going to live for 70 years but which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Church, we have never spoken to a mere mortal. Let that sink in. You've never had an ordinary conversation in your life, not with your Uber driver, not with your coworker, not with your restaurant server, not with your family member who is far from God. You have never had a conversation in your life with a mere mortal. And this juxtaposition that, that C.S. Lewis presents us with is this. We either believe or we don't that people will live for eternity somewhere. We can't escape that in the passage God is being patient, calling all that He can to Himself. He holds out the greatest gift, the greatest kindness that He can in His Son and in repentance. He offers all of that, hoping, pleading that all would come. you were redeemed today, God has extended His patient mercy to you. And this brings us to the last part of the text. We have to do something with the patient mercy that we have been given. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of sin, God is at work and it is glorious and it propels us to love radically. Let's continue on in the text starting at verse 10. Now he, this is still Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. 
And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. He laid his hands on her. Immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which this work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on this Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. The people of God rejoiced at all of the glorious things that were done by him. Notice as we continue on into this, this final story that we'll deal with today. That we've been dealing a lot with suffering and with sin. There's no doubt about that. But there's something else we've been dealing with this entire time too. And that is the theme of God's mercy in the midst of suffering and sin. And it continues right into this passage. Notice in the text that the woman doesn't call out to Jesus. She doesn't run over to him. But rather he sees her and calls out to her. Do you recognize how extraordinary this is? This woman, crippled and hunched over, has probably been ignored year after year after year by every other person that's gathering in the synagogue because that's what we do with pain and suffering. It's easier to ignore it than it is to deal with it right in front of us. This woman is sitting there and Jesus sees this woman and he deals with her. He calls out to her. But Jesus doesn't use ordinary language here. He doesn't just talk about healing her. Look at verses 12 and again in 16. He uses the language of freedom. Jesus freed her. He loosed her from bondage. With the touch of his hand, with the sound of his voice, Jesus doesn't just heal this woman. He pushes back the entire dominion of the evil one at work in this world. He frees her from her disability, yes, and in doing so, he announces, proclaims the coming of his kingdom in mercy and in power. The hope of the kingdom is not some far-off reality wrapped up in the glories of heaven alone. No, there is mercy and there is grace here, right now. And you, like me, Today may feel weary under the burden of what you have been chained to. For an hour, for a day, for a week, for your life. The addiction that weighs you down and robs you of joy in Christ. The hopes and the dreams of what could have been that deprive you of the happiness and the graces that God offers you here and now. The false identities that we take on as we listen to the lies of the evil one. That we are unlovable. That we are ugly. That we are too far gone to be saved. 
We take on the label as addict, ADHD, victim, adulterer, and all of this crowds out the voice of Jesus calling out to them and to us right now, come to me. In Matthew 11, we see Jesus declares, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. In me you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus in this text is calling us from the kingdom of this world, from the domain of the evil one to the kingdom of God. He's calling each of us to salvation, yes. To mercy and to rest. By freeing this woman from the evil one and from her illness, Jesus demonstrates his authority not just over the physical realm, not just his ability to heal, but his dominion, his rule over the spiritual realm. He reveals the truth that he is powerful to free those who are bound to sin, enslaved to the dominion of this world. And at the same time, as he is freeing those who are bound up, he himself is binding up Satan. He is pushing back his work in this world. He is defeating the evil one. How does Jesus describe this? Woman, this person who's been set free. Look at the text. When faced with the indignation of the synagogue ruler, Jesus calls her daughter of Abraham. She is not defined by her disability or by her past but instead is called child of God. The one who turns to Jesus as their only hope in this world and the next. We are no longer what we've done. We are no longer chained to our sin, to our addictions, to our broken marriages and our broken relationships. We are set free and called children of God. So as children of God, sons and daughters of Abraham, freed from the domain of the evil one. What are we to do now? See, lastly in this text, that even in the midst of suffering and sin, the gospel of Jesus propels us out in love. The text answers this question, what are we to do now, by first giving us a really awesome example of what not to do. I'm really, like, seriously, if you want to know right now what to not do when you're faced with sin and suffering in the world, just look at what the ruler of the synagogue does. 
because that's not it. Look back at the text. The ruler of the synagogue has no time for the life transformation that's taking place right in front of him. Notice how he speaks so narrowly of what Jesus has done, so flippantly of it, like physical healing can just happen on any old other day. He doesn't address the fact that this woman's life has been transformed, but hones in very narrowly on the fact that an affliction of hers, at least temporarily, seems to have been healed. He responds to Jesus not by speaking directly to him, but instead addresses the crowd and tries to push back against the miraculous by pointing out that what Jesus did was against the law of God. Therefore, it's not miraculous, it's sinful. Jesus, like the synagogue ruler, has no time for that. Just as the synagogue ruler had no time for the transformation that had taken place in his midst, Jesus has no time for the synagogue ruler's legalism or for ours. He responds simply by asking those present, how do you care for the animals in your possession? Even on the Sabbath, a day of rest from work, Do you not love and have mercy enough to loose the bonds of the animals that you have that they might receive nourishment and life on this day? And Jesus' point is that if you have mercy enough to do that, then how can you, how could he not respond in mercy and love to one who bound by Satan needed living water and bread of life on this day? The response of the child of God in the world faced on every side by sin and suffering is to repent, yes. To see the loving kindness of God's patience towards us, yes. To see the glory that God works even in the midst of sin and suffering, absolutely. But it is finally to rejoice in this mercy and to go out in love. The kingdom of God breaks in here and now. Look back at verse 17. The adversaries of Jesus are put to shame and the people rejoice at the glory of God. So for those today, right now, who have suffered in sin and been met with the healing mercy of God's grace, there is only one thing that we can do now. Rejoice. And hold out living water and bread of life to those who are still bound by the evil one. For we are foolish to think that Christianity is anything other than one beggar showing another beggar where he found bread. A lot this week I prayed that God would break my heart thinking that I didn't need basic truths like the gospel anymore. I needed to hear time and time and time again this week just with a really difficult situation that that my wife and I are facing right now. The truth of the gospel 
that not only can't I save myself, I don't have to. That I don't have to endure suffering perfectly. Jesus has already done that. We hear these things and we nod our head and we say, yeah, yeah, I've got that. I've heard that. But here in Luke 13, the synagogue ruler proves otherwise. There is a need in the midst of suffering and sin for us to be brought low before the Lord Jesus and repent of our sin. And yes, to find there His glorious mercy and grace. Don't miss that because you've heard it before. You need it as much today as you did yesterday. I need it as much today as I did when I was nine years old. Or 13. Or 20. I want to end with one last story. In May of 1940, the German blitzkrieg ran through the Netherlands and the other low countries. And within months, the Nazification of the Dutch people had began. And the quiet life of the Ten Boom family was changed forever. During the war, their home became a refuge for Jews and students and intellectuals. The facade of the watch shop that the family owned made their house an ideal front for these activities. A secret room no larger than a small wardrobe closet was built into Corey's bedroom behind a false wall. The space could only hold up to six people, all of whom had to stand quiet and still when inside. The Ten Boons built a crude ventilation system to provide air for the occupants of this space. When the security sweeps came through, they'd even installed a buzzer that would signal the danger that was coming and allow the refugees in their home a little over a minute to find sanctuary in this hiding place. The entire Tim Boom family became active in the Dutch resistance, risking their lives harboring those who hunted who were hunted by the Gestapo. Some fugitives stayed an hour, a day, a week. Corey Tin Boom became a leader in this movement, overseeing a network of these so-called safe houses throughout the country and beyond. And through these activities, it's estimated that at least 800 Jews' lives were saved. And then on February of 1944, a Dutch informant told the Nazis of the Ten Boons activities and the Gestapo raided their home. All of the family members were arrested and incarcerated, including Corey's 84-year-old father, who died shortly after in prison. Corey and her sister, Betsy, were remanded to the notorious Ravensbrück concentration camp just outside of Berlin. Betsy died there. Corey watched her sister die on December, December 16th of 1944. And Twelve days later, Corey, for some unknown reason, was released from this prison. 
Later, when she was confronted with the very Nazis who had imprisoned her family, who had killed her father, who had killed her sister, and doled out untold suffering to her, Corey wrote this. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And so I discovered that it is not on our own forgiveness any more than on our own goodness that the world's healing hinges. But on his It is not on our own goodness or on our forgiveness that the healing of the world hinges. It is on Christ. When he, Christ, tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the love itself to do it. So as we have journeyed through Luke 13 today and found God's provisions for us in suffering, many of those are commands, things that we must do as sufferers and sinners. God gives you the grace and the mercy and the love to do it all. God gives, along with the call to repentance and love and suffering, all the grace that we will need. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are patient, that you are merciful, and that you hold out grace to us who have rebelled against you. God, I I just I pray that we would having felt the weightiness of our sin, having given that sin over to you, having experienced the glories of your grace at the table, having feasted on your word today, I pray that you would propel us out into this world as a force of radical love for the glory of your kingdom. That you would be at work in this city to make dead hearts alive in Jesus. So God, we plead for your spirit. We pray that you would come and that you would meet us, that the gospel wouldn't ever get old for one day, but that we would preach it to ourselves and to this dying and hurting world day after day, moment after moment, knowing that it is our only hope. God, I pray that you would make us low, that you would make us humble, that we would need, that we would just see our need for you. that we would find in you everything that we need. So God, I pray that you would loose the chains of those who are bound to sin and to the evil one and that you would free us up in the grace that you have given us to worship you now. To live radical lives of love. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.